chapter 7, verse 15, and then chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. Let us listen for God's words for us. Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. Then Samuel became old. He made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. Yet his son did not follow in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, You are old, and your sons do not follow in your ways. Appoint for us, then, a king to govern us like other nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to govern us. Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them, just as they have done to me from the day I brought them out of Egypt to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so also they are doing to you. Now then, listen to their voice. Only you shall solemnly warn them, and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. May God add a blessing to the reading and hearing of this word. You join me now in a moment of prayer. Let us pray. Holy God, speak now for your people are listening. We know that your word is a lamp to our feet and a guide for us in every age, and so we ask that your word would speak to us here again today, that you had help us to call to mind the gospel of Jesus Christ, the deep truths that have spoken down through the generations that have been carried even to us and through us, so that we may be your church in this time and in this place. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable indeed pleasing in your sight, God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. What is one to do in a tumultuous time when the next generation seems ill-equipped to lead? That is the question that the elders of Israel were facing when they saw that the sons of Samuel did not take after their father, these two sour apples fell very, very far from the tree. What is one to do when corruption is now the policy, indulgence in bribery the common practice, and the very notion of righteousness, of, of true justice and mercy that takes after God's intention for creation seems no longer to be possible or plausible. If only I knew someone here today who could understand what it felt like to live in a time when the world feels ungovernable, and the only people seemingly willing or able to step up and try to take hold of it are the septuagenarians and the octogenarians. If only there was someone who could identify with the elders who look around and notice that things uh, seem to be falling apart a little bit as they're aging, and yet 
wondering, where are the young folks to bring new life and, and leadership, new vim and vigor to the community and to the church? Aren't the youth supposed to be the great hope for the future? The thing is that every generation, I think, at some point or another, feels like it is the last sane, righteous generation left on earth, and that the kids are not going to be all right. Time marches on, the world churns on, nothing remains the same. Nothing, that is, except for God. As the prophet Isaiah so memorably put it, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Unchanging, immutable, God remains God. But to say that God does not change is a little bit too simple, because this morning's scripture contains a bit of a perplexity for us. You see, when the elders of Israel came to Samuel to declare that they couldn't trust his sons to follow in his footsteps. And, and rather than God raising up a new judge, as had been the practice in the past, they, would, they want Samuel to appoint for them a king. And this displeases Samuel. And I don't think he's displeased because they're critical of his sons. I mean, any parent knows their child well enough to know, I think, as Samuel would, uh, whether they're cut out for their career, whether that be leadership or ditch digging. They may not know the particulars, but they have a sense of who their child has grown up to be. So I presume that Samuel probably knew what his sons were up to. He knew about the bribes and the perversion of justice, but he, we are told repeatedly, was old. He was old. He was tired. He was worn out. He didn't want to have to confront his sons. He didn't want to have to call on them to change course. But he also reserved his ire here for the elders because what they were proposing was that what Israel really needed was a king. And there's only one problem with that. Israel already had a king. Up to this point, in this period of its history as a people, Israel had been led by a succession of prophetic figures, people whom God had come to specifically to raise them up into leadership roles, people like Moses and Joshua. And then after the people had settled in the land of Canaan, the people were governed by folks called judges. Their leadership would kick in only in times of great crisis. Judges like Gideon and Jephthah and Samson, they were elected to lead the Israelites in battle. The prophetess Deborah was a judge too. She divined a strategy to defeat a warlord named Sisera. But each of these judges was only ever a temporary leader, called upon an acute crisis to lead the people. The judges were not kings because Israel already had a king. Think about what a king does. A king makes the laws. A king appoints leaders and elevates people to power. A king leads the army in battle and embodies the collective identity of the people. Who had filled that role for the people of Israel since coming out of slavery in Egypt? It was God. It was Yahweh. 
God had gone before the people in a pillar of fire and smoke. God had been the one to defeat Egypt's armies. God had given them a law at Mount Sinai. God had raised up the judges and appointed the leaders to positions of power when the moment called for it. It was God's action that led the people of Israel. God was the king of Israel, but not a king like the other nations had. Those who were close to God, like Moses and Samuel, knew that the kingship of God was what set the Israelites apart from their neighbors. It's what enabled them to survive and, and as a people in this covenantal relationship where God would watch over them and they, in turn, would be God's people. It is this special relationship between God and God's people that set them apart from all the nations around them. See, Jesus understood this truth, too, when he said, my kingdom is not of this world, by which he meant that the heavenly kingdom of God, whose existence he proclaimed and embodied, wasn't like the other nations. It wasn't like any other kind of political community. The people of God, Jesus taught, is not a nation. It knows neither Jew nor Greek, neither male nor female. It is a beloved community with no division because in the kingdom of heaven, all stand equally before the throne where our God sits in judgment and mercy. And no king could take the place of that God. But what does God say When Samuel brings the words of the elders to God in prayer, what is God's response? Listen to their voice. Do what they say. God says it twice. Listen to the voice of the people. God understands what's happening here. God understands that the people have rejected the divine rulership of God. It's like the old Fleetwood Mac song says, I'd give you my world, everything's waiting for you, but you can go your own way. Why does God respond this way to the rejection of the people? Of course, God is eminently familiar with rejection. God says, I have been rejected all along since these people came out of Egypt. God understands the rejection of the people, but why does God give in here? Why does God let the people go their own way? I think it's because unlike the rulers of Israel, who see a crisis of leadership and demand what they think is the most prudent response in the moment, God takes the long view. God always takes the long view. God tells Samuel to to speak to the people and show them the ways of the king. And so Samuel goes on to tell the people how a king will tax them, will take their sons to war and take their daughters as concubines, will take their choicest vineyards and their cattle, give a man power, put him in the place of God, and you will not be shocked to see how he will not hesitate to use that position for his own personal gain. This is what Samuel says to the people. And these aren't just a general warning. Every single thing he names there comes to pass in the subsequent narrative of the history of the monarchy of Israel. Saul, the first king, he'll engage in a nearly constant state of war during his reign. David, who follows Saul, will have a man killed so he can take his wife into his home. 
King Ahab, who comes along later down the line, he demands a vineyard from a neighboring small-time landowner named Naboth, and when he refuses, it costs Naboth his life. None of this has happened yet at this point in the history. And for them, there's no real reason to think that it will happen. If you just read the first verse, which, which Heather read, 1 Samuel 7.15, and then you skipped over to Samuel chapter 9, you'd never guess how ruinous all of this will turn out. Because the story just continues with, with the coming of the first king. Everything seems fine and dandy. But the word of God interrupts in that chapter 8 interrupts these short-sighted plans of humankind with a warning to pause and to reassess and to think again. Because it turns out, it's not God who is immutable and unchanging, but us. We are the ones who tend to insist upon our own way and resist God's instructions. We seek to be like everyone else, even when God calls us to be otherwise. With two simple words, Jesus called his disciples away from the lives that they knew. And, and he continues to call people to him in new and different ways, saying those same two words, follow me. Follow me away from greed and corruption. Follow me away from hatred and bigotry. Follow me away from violence and trauma. Follow me away from the ways of the world. So that rather than stumbling from one problematic situation to the next with short-term solutions always in mind, you can catch a glimpse of the larger picture of what God is really about in this world. As I was saying to the boys, today is Reformation Sunday, a day we remember mostly for one young monk's defiant rejection of institutional rot and hypocrisy. 506 years later, we live here in the legacy of what Luther's prophetic words wrought. Faithful people heeded his insistence that God, and not the church, and certainly not some fellow in a big hat in Rome, is the truest source of our saving grace. Those who followed Luther started to be the church in a different way, a way that was more focused on family and community, on personal responsibility and piety. And the reformers began to teach a new generation, and the generation after that, and the generation after that, and generation upon generation, that rather than ceding control over what matters most in our lives to worldly authorities, it is God and God alone who we affirm as our guide, as our leader, as the head of our church, our king, our queen, our teacher, our savior. Even as we take this long view of the history of the church and the long view of scripture telling the story of salvation through the people of Israel, we have to recognize what it means for us here and now today. The implication of this perspective is that we have to avoid the temptation to respond to circumstances with hasty and pragmatic and short-sighted solutions and instead seek answers in the deep story of God's grace. The problems we face as a church, as a society, as a world, are great and not easily resolved. But today, 
with this word that breaks into us, interrupts us in the course of our daily lives, we are reminded that while God may not always approve of the course of human history, God does not abandon humankind nor leave us to our own devices forever. For even as God allowed the Israelites to have a king like the other nations, nevertheless, God ensured that that king of Israel would be God's Messiah, the anointed one, the chosen one of God. And in the fullness of time, God would send the Messiah, the Christ, to raise up and lead humankind from darkness into light, from death into life, and from resistance to repentance. May we today wait and watch faithfully and continue to keep our ears open for the living word of God. Follow me, for my kingdom is not of this world.